All right, everybody. <clears throat> we are in Isaiah 59, and we are going to begin in verse number 15. Isaiah 59, verse 15. I think we actually studied 15 last week, but we'll start here because that's where really this kind of last section of this chapter begins. Uh, so where we left off, 59 is really kind of divided into two halves. The first half is God certainly rebuking the people for their sin. And then the second half is where the people start to show some contrition and some admittance to their sin and start to say, yes, we've done wrong. And this is Isaiah speaking on their behalf. Yes, we've done wrong. And here's all the ways that we've done wrong. And we desperately need salvation and so forth. So um, we're right in the middle of that. It's a lot of the same stuff said in the first half as in the second. It's just in the first half, it's accusatory. and the second half, it's confessional. It's a lot of you are like this. And the second half is we are like that. So you're getting that. So 5915. Yea, truth fails, <clears throat> Excuse me. and he that departs from evil makes himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. This, is, this verse, while we're starting here, is kind of the dividing line between the text that started way back in verse 8, where we were last week, 8 through 15, which is Judah's confession, and starting at the end of verse 15 through 21, the end of the chapter, which is this promise of God to save those who repent. So you confess, I forgive. That's the way it works. Ideally, you wouldn't have to sin in the first place, or confess because you wouldn't sin in the first place, but you're going to sin. So when you confess, then I'll forgive. And here's what it looks like. So the first half of this is just the end of their confession of their sins. They're saying truth fails. Truth literally dies like a soldier in battle. Now, it's not like the truth of God is extinguished, but like within the hearts of the people, their, their willingness to abide by it, their willingness to proclaim it or teach it to their children and pass it on, that's fizzling and dying on the vine of society. And then the second half begins, or not, no, not even, the middle of the beginning of it. Um, and he that departs from evil makes himself a prey. Let's not run past that. It's very sad, but it's, very, it's a great turn of phrase. Those rare few people in Judah at this time who would stand up to evil and say, I won't act like that. I will not partake in that. I will depart from evil. They put a target on their back when they do that. There is no live and let live here. There is no, we'll do this this way and you do things your way if you want. Just let, leave us alone to live however we want to live. It doesn't work like that. It never works like that. Because the moment you say, even if you wanted to concede and say, fine, live however you want, but I'm not going to live that way. They will turn around and say, no, you must conform. You must agree with my way. You must accept my way. And if you don't, not only just verbally accept it, but go out of your way to make actions that, that go along with it and that support it and that uphold it, then you're a criminal and you must be ostracized. But enough about America. He that departs from evil <laughs> makes himself a prey. There's nothing new under the sun. He that departs from evil makes himself a prey. And now we start the second half. This is their confession. Now God responds. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. He looks down and he sees a lack of justice in the nation, and he is not satisfied or happy with it. Verse 16, he saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no intercessor. He, if God could have a human emotion, he was shocked at how there was nobody willing to stand up and face the uh, persecution and the prosecution of evil people and say, this is wrong, I will fight for what is right. You might get a half-hearted willingness to say, I won't partake, but then they'll always be crushed 
by the, the consensus of the majority. But there is no one man. There is no one great champion. There is no one standard bearer of righteousness in all the nation. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him, him being the Judean in general. And his righteousness, it sustained him. God looks down the nation and he says, there is nobody here just enough, righteous enough, pure enough to be used to take care of everybody else, to save everybody else. So God says, I will roll up my sleeve and make bare my holy arm, and my arm will bring down salvation. The arm of God is the Son of God, the Savior. His righteousness will be what sustains the people. His arm will be what brings salvation to the people. 17. For He puts on righteousness like a breastplate. He puts on a helmet of salvation on His head. He puts on garments of vengeance for clothing, and He clads with zeal, like a cloak. First half of this, no doubt, familiar to you. What does it sound like? The armor of God. It doesn't list every single part like Paul does. And Paul lists the armor of God in two different uh, books that he writes. One's a little shorter, one's a little bit longer. I think we kind of overanalyze it. We, we try to singularly attach righteousness to a breastplate or something like that. When Really, that wasn't really Paul's point. He didn't want you to have a one-to-one -one comparison. It has to be a breastplate. It, uh, his point was generally comparing armor pieces to the Christian uh, fight we fight. But that idea, no doubt, I mean, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, the same one who inspires Isaiah, it has its origin here. This is what it looks like to fight the fight that God is fighting. And it's not take a sword of steel and cut off physical heads. It is take the sword of the Spirit and save souls. He puts on righteousness, that's his breastplate. You can't stop an arrow with righteousness. But when you're fighting a spiritual battle, the arrows don't matter. Righteousness can be your breastplate. He puts on a helmet of salvation on his head. Listen, you can wear salvation on your head. It will not stop a war hammer from slamming into the side of it and killing you. But if you're fighting a spiritual battle, the hammer doesn't matter. Salvation is on your head. He puts on garments. Now here's where it differs between Christ the soldier and the Christian soldier. He puts on garments of vengeance. We are not called to vengeance. Vengeance is his. He will repay. Romans 12, 17. He clads zeal around him. The fervor to fight. Like a cloak that he wears. That's not for us. It's not our fight. He fights on our behalf. We just back him up. We stand behind him, that is to say. According to their deeds, 18, he will repay. Fury to his adversaries. Recompense, payback to his enemies. To the, King James says, islands to the nations. Gentiles in particular. He will repay recompense. He has taken notes on every one who's ever done him wrong. He has taken detailed record of every nation that's ever sinned against him, that's ever spat in his holy eye, that's ever attacked his righteous people and made them unrighteous. He has them all written down. He's got his receipts. He's coming for you. So you better get on his side before it's too late. 19. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun, that be the east. So from east to west and all around. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall raise up a standard against him. He's raised up a standard. The power of his blood, the battle belongs to the Lord. So the point of this text, it, it describes Isaiah, what he does. He does this a lot in his book. He, he uses very um, period-specific phraseology and imagery. 
a, a, a nation and what a nation looks like. The ideal perfect kingdom with its walls and its battlements and its grand army and all these sort of things. And its, its lavish economy and gold and riches. He uses those imageries that his readers in 700 BC would be deeply aware of and familiar with. And then he says, it will be like that for the Messiah. But it will not be physically like that. That's just, you get that imagery and you have to kind of magnify it to an eternal degree. Magnify it to, the, to an nth degree. Because it will be like that on a grander spiritual scale. So he takes these physical things and he makes spiritual application with them. He talks about salvation sometimes in this book as conquering your enemies. As putting your boot on the throat of your enemies. But it will actually be like that. When you preach the gospel to somebody and you have a Bible. Alex, how many times in your Bible studies that you have like every other day with people. Do you put your throat on those sinners to get them to obey the gospel? No. But Isaiah says that's what it looks like. Because from the... 700 BC mentality of converting someone, the idea is, I'm on God's side, you're the enemy of God, you're my enemy. What do you do with enemies? You crush your enemies. You, I'm almost like Conan the Barbarian. You crush your enemies, you defeat your enemies, you put your boot on the heel, the heel of your boot on the throat of your enemies. Okay, that's the, that's the physical mindset. How is that applied spiritually? What does that look like spiritually? You kill your enemy. Why? How? Through the gospel where they die, and then you resurrect them out of the watery grave. And then they're no longer your enemy. Then they're your brother. Then they're on your side, fighting the same fight you're fighting. Not killing with a sword, converting with a sword, because your sword is the word of God. So take that physical imagery of fighting warfare and apply it to the spiritual realm. Look again in verse 19. So they, all these nations about whom God has taken his list, they shall fear the name of the Lord from west to east, He's got his eyes set on the whole world. And when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of God will raise up the battle banner. The banner that waves to signal for the soldiers to charge in. What is the banner of the Christian soldier? It is the cross of Jesus Christ. What is the, the rallying point around which we converge to go fight our enemy? It is salvation that Jesus offers. The blood which he shed on that cross, which takes our enemies and turns them into allies. That's the fight. Verse 20. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion. The King James says here. I'll come back to that. And unto them that turn from righteous, uh, turn from transgression in Jacob, they, uh, they, the Redeemer shall come to them, says the Lord. Go back to the beginning of the verse. The Redeemer, the Messiah, he will, my Bible says, come to Zion to set up his standard. His standard will be there and he will gather the world to it. John 12, 32, if I be lifted up, I'll rally the whole world unto me. And he will save his people from transgression. Okay, somebody read Romans eleven twenty six, And tell me if you don't sound hear the familiarity. Romans eleven twenty six. And in the... And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. That's what you just read, right? You just heard it, so let me read 59.20 again. The Redeemer, my Bible says the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and then that turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. Now, mine says the Redeemer shall come to Zion. Does anybody have a different preposition there? Mine says to Zion. Is it, hmm? From? You're saying... In the Old Testament, yours says from? Two. Are you in Isaiah? I'm looking at Romans. Ah, yeah, that's the, that's the catch, though. Hang on, let's go back to Isaiah. I want you, because Paul's quoting from Isaiah. So let's go back to the Isaiah text, okay? 
Go back to Isaiah 59, 20. Mine says, come to Zion. Does everyone's Bible say, come to Zion? Right. In the Hebrew, the Hebrew vocabulary is very small. They don't have a lot of words. Especially, they don't have linking verbs and prepositions a lot. So their, their language is very, you know, keyword centered. The Greek language, much more flowery. You couldn't shut the Greeks up. They had a lot of words. Big vocabulary. <laughs> and so their language, even though it's, they have so many words, it ends up being more precise because they have more words to choose from to select for what they want. Well, here, it's just Redeemer come Zion. That's, that's all it says in Hebrew. And you're left in the context to figure out the preposition. The translator is hard task sometimes to figure out, is the Redeemer coming to Zion or coming from Zion? And sometimes you just, it's crapshoot. Sometimes you just guess and hope the context works. It doesn't do much damage here to say he comes to Zion, but he doesn't actually mean that. And I know he doesn't mean that, Isaiah, I mean, because Paul, in using a more precise language, says the Redeemer will come out of Zion. So now that tells you it's not everyone come to Zion. It's saying redemption will flow from Zion. And that's what Isaiah has already said in chapter 2. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's the, the prophecy of the mountain of God's house that will all flow up to and then salvation will flow out of. So this redemption of the Redeemer, the Messiah's salvation will flow out of Zion unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. Isaiah 59, 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them. This is my covenant with, mind your pronouns, Judah, the world also, says the Lord. My spirit is upon thee, not them, but thee, different pronoun, the Messiah. My spirit is upon the Messiah, and my words which I put in thy Messiah's mouth shall not depart out of thy Messiah's mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, that's us, those who come after the Messiah, no, out of the mouth of thy seeds, seed. I guess the first one would be the original disciples, the first Christians, and now here we are many generations later who were the disciples of the disciples, the taught by the taught, following the Great Commission. That's the seed, seed, says the Lord, from henceforth and forever. So there is this um, uh, collection being described here, that with Christ as his head, and those who come after him, after him, and those who come after all of them, who are us, and those who will teach will come after us, this perpetual nature of redemption being spread is the idea here. This new covenant that is being given that is, starts with Christ, passed on to the world who receives it, teaches it to others to receive it and pass it on into 59. Now, we just started the tail end of chapter 59, but you've got to remember the beginning of 59 is you're wicked, you're terrible, you're horrible, you're abominable. The middle of 59 is, yes, we are wicked, terrible, horrible, abominable. And then the mood changes. And God says, and because you are and you can't save yourself, I will come down to save you. And then everything's going to be great. So you just got the tease there at the end of the chapter. Chapter 60, you get the whole shebang. Arise, shine, for thy light is come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. We have had multiple chapters having to listen to all the many sins of the people. And now that's done. Chapters 60 through 62, there are no discussions of the people's sins. There are no long rebukes of the people's many wicked things that they do. There are no harsh warnings given by God. There are no threats made by God. There's no, there's no uh, examples of wickedness. It's just, ain't it great to be saved by Jehovah? That's what this is. In fact, chapter 60 is like a song or a poem, but it's broken into five movements. Movement 1, verses 1 through 4. The light of God that bathes this new Zion of the Messiah. 
Movement two, verses five through nine. The great wealth of Zion. Because we're bringing in all these Gentiles with all of the riches that they can provide to this new kingdom. Third, verses 10 through 14. The protection God will give to this new Zion. Fourth, verses 15 through 18. How wonderful it will be to live in this new Zion. And finally, fifth, verses 19 through 22. The closeness the people will have with God in this new Zion. It is so great to belong to the kingdom of the Messiah. Let me count the ways, is Isaiah chapter 60. Everything you're going to read here, you have. They didn't have yet. They were being promised it. You've got it. The new Zion is the church of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of the Messiah is the spiritual body of the Lord. It is what you belong to. It is what He adds you to when you, your sins are washed away in His blood. And now you're out of the world. He doesn't leave you floating in limbo out of the world, but not in righteousness. He puts you into a righteous place. He, he lets you live in uh, spiritual fellowship with Him. He takes you out of the kingdom of darkness and He translates you into the kingdom of His Son. Colossians 1.13 Isaiah 60, verse 2. Well, having said all that, let's read verse 1 again. So arise and shine. That's probably where mothers got that phrase. Rise and shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Rise and shine, Judah, for your light, that light which has been promised to you, has come. Your darkness is done, your sunrise is here. Verse 2. For behold... Darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness, the King James says, covers the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and His glory shall be seen upon you. I have two words for darkness here. First, I have darkness, the absence of light. Just the word means what it sounds like. But then he says, and gross darkness in my Bible. What's your Bible say? Deep, thick darkness. It, 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 can be, it can be used to mean darkness in a visual or even in a weather sense, but it's a word that's usually used in an emotional sense. This is the proverbial darkness. This person is in a dark place, we say. He feels a, a pall over his head, you, like Ziggy with the cloud that always followed him. That kind of darkness is what he's talking about here. This, this complete and total emotional, psychological, spiritual darkness He's already got physical darkness, which even that's metaphorical. But now he says it goes, it's a darkness that cuts deep. This gross darkness has covered my people, but the Lord shall arise. And he's already told you what that means in verse 1. Light is blossoming. Light shall arise upon you, and his glory shall be seen upon you. And it's not just for you, you Jews. Verse 3, and the Gentiles shall come to this light. It's your light because he's a Jew. He's going to come up as a Jew. He's going to be born and raised and taught Hebrew customs. He's going to be taught the law. He's going to memorize the Torah. He's going to, he's going to wow the doctors of the law at the age of 12. He's going to keep the Sabbath. He's going to be, in every way, a faithful little Hebrew boy, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a Jew. But that light that will come from this Jewish man, from this Jewish nation will touch these Gentile people. The Gentiles shall come to your light. And the kings, that's another word used to describe the other nations, to the brightness of your rising. 
This is, for, this is God's way of saying to His people, this is your light. I've been promising you this light. Going back to Adam, going back to Abraham, going back to Jacob. I've been promising this light to you. And now to you comes this great light, getting you out of this darkness. And now here come all these Gentiles to bathe in this light that I'm giving you. It's your light. But it's big enough for them too. And they're going to take it. Not take it from you, but get in it to you. Verse 4. Lift up your eyes and look around you and see. All they gather themselves together. All these other nations gather themselves together. And they come to you. Your son shall come from afar. And your daughter shall be nursed at your side. They are coming to receive the same blessings of God that you're, been, that you're receiving. Jesus, when he gives the Great Commission, he says, Preach this gospel to the Jew, to the Samaritan, and then to the Gentile to the uttermost parts of the earth. He lays out the template. starts here, and the light spreads outward. They're going to see that light. They're going to see that beacon. And like moths to a flame, they're going to be drawn to it. It is not your place to say, no, it's not for you. Because it's for every sinner. Anybody. Verse 5. So look up and see this light. Then you shall see, verse 5, and flow together, and your heart shall fear and be enlarged. Because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto you. This Bible uses the word, the old Bible, sea, to talk about Gentile nations. Same way it talks about islands and things like that. The sea is a synecdoche for the world around you, the nations of the world. So, the abundance of the sea, the Gentile nations, shall be converted unto you. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto you. I can understand why, reading this, a Jew might think... It's our place to, to proselytize these Gentiles, to, to make these Gentiles conform to our culture and customs. I can understand, just by reading this literally, why the Judaizing Christians would say, all right, fine, these Gentiles will baptize them, but they have to be circumcised, and they have to not eat certain foods, they have to observe certain days, they have to keep a lot of the customs and culture and covenants of the old law. I can see why people would read that, because they would take Isaiah's words written from a standpoint of, Here's what you understand salvation looks like, victory looks like, conquest. And they would take it literally. But it's not a literal conquest. It's written as a conquest, but it's applied as a fellowship salvation. But you can see the conquest all over it. They'll be converted to you. Because what do you do when you conquer back in the day? What did you do when you conquered a nation? They would have to learn your language. They would have to pay your taxes. They would be subservient to your king. You conquer them. They're converted to you. Salvation. Isaiah puts it in those terms. And the forces of the Gentiles shall come unto you. What happens when you defeat a nation? You, nobody's ever won a war by literally killing every enemy soldier. That's not the goal. The goal of war is to kill the five or six important guys to get them to surrender. And then all the other soldiers just go home. They will be converted to you. Their, their forces will come to you in surrender. That's the physical worldly perspective of conquest as he writes it. But the application of Christ is salvation and peace. Verse 6. The multitude of camels shall cover you. Dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all that come from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, the fragrant that you burn. And they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. Think about how much riches and, and blessings these Gentiles are going to be bringing when they come in. They're going to be coming with all their tribute, with all their gold, with all their incense, with all their praises. They're going to be coming to worship your God, your light. Your Messiah, they're coming in in this new kingdom, big enough to hold them all. Verse 7. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister unto you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, 
and I will glorify the house of my glory. They will come up, and again, you're putting this in 700 B.C. terminology, right? These Gentiles are going to come up to this holy mountain, and they're going to offer sacrifices on my altar, and it's not going to be an abomination. That's what it would have been if it happened literally. If you get some rando Gentile coming up with his goat that he wants to offer on the bronze altar, those high priests are going to flip a wig. You're not allowed to do that. This is a sacred place for a sacred people. But God is saying, I'm opening the, go the doors. I'm opening the floodgates. They're going to come in. They're going to offer all kinds of things on my altar in a good way because it's a metaphor designed to describe worship. All these people from all sorts of nations and cultures and languages are going to come in and they're all going to speak the same language, which is worship to God. And they're going to offer the same worship, which is praise to the Lord. And I will glorify the house of my glory. That to the Jew reading this in 700 BC, that's the temple. But that building is going to be burned down in a couple hundred years, or a little over a hundred years. That building is going to be gone. But the temple of God spiritually will still exist. It will become the temple of the body of Jesus Christ, which he will open for all of us to enter into. Verse 8. Who are these that fly as a cloud, like doves to their windows? Isaiah describes the approaching Gentile people. And how does he describe them? Are they this um, malevolent force coming with torches and pitchforks like they're coming to take out Frankenstein? No, it's not like that. He describes this flock of doves. Coming my way. He describes it as a, a peaceful white cloud just being carried by the wind toward us. It's, it's a huge thing coming, but it's a benevolent thing that is coming. They're flying in like a cloud, like doves to the windows. Verse 9. Surely the isles, that's the, king, the Gentile nations, shall wait for me. And the ships of Tarshish first to bring the suns from far, their silver and their gold with them, unto the name of the Lord God and the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified thee. They're coming, and they're coming with their gold, and they're coming with their silver, and they're coming with their incense. They're coming to offer sacrifice, praise, and worship. To offer the same worship to the same God that you serve through the same Messiah who will come from you. Ten. And the sons of strangers shall build up your walls, and their king shall minister unto you. For in my wrath I smote you, but in my favor I had mercy on you. This is God's way. Going back to the previous chapter. You've repented. I said I would forgive you. Here's what forgiveness looks like. It looks like me opening the floodgates of salvation to the world. Forgiveness looks like my arm, which is the Messiah, saving you. But he's not just going to save you because you're just a little itty-bitty nation in the whole grand scheme of the world. And he's coming for bigger fish than that. He's coming to save the whole world. So with that in mind, again, verse 10. He's opening the floodgates of salvation to all. He's opening the borders of his kingdom to all. And the sons of strangers, that's Gentiles, are going to build up your walls. They, this people reading this at this time would have perceived Gentiles coming in as an invading army. Of course they would. They already had to deal with Assyria literally invading them. And now they're being told Babylon, another army of strangers, is coming in to invade them. And they will come to knock down their walls and burn down their temple and destroy their people. God says, now here comes another wave of Gentiles, but they're coming to build up your walls. They're coming to minister to you. Their kings are coming to preach to you and to serve you and to be helpful to you. Because I smote you in my wrath, but I will extend mercy to you in my favor. And that's what it looks like. Verse 11. Therefore, your gates will be open continually. God, here come a whole bunch of Gentiles. What do we do? Unlock the door and let them in. 
and open your door and keep it open. Your gates will be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night, so that men can bring unto you the forces of the Gentiles, and so that their kings may be brought. For the nation and the kingdom, verse 12, they will not serve you, shall perish. we got all these people who don't want to come to you, who don't want to submit to you, so we should lock our doors for them, right? No, they're out of the picture. You don't have to worry about them. You can keep the doors open because anyone who wants to submit can come through. You're not the gatekeeper anymore. We don't need a bouncer at the door. Open the doors. Anyone who wants to come in can come in. Well, what if they don't want to come in? Then they won't be around to threaten you. Verse 12. For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. We're not talking about fighting a physical fight. We're talking about fighting principalities and powers in heavenly places. We're talking about fighting spiritual forces. Ephesians 6.12. Isaiah 60, 13. The glory of Lebanon shall come unto you, fir tree, pine tree, box tree together, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The Jews thought, and rightly so, uh, from their perspective, they thought of Jerusalem as the crown jewel of God's creation on earth. And they thought of the temple as the footstool of God. Inside the temple is his throne where he sits, and outside is where he puts his feet. Puts his feet up after a long, hard day of doing God work. So they thought of this as the, the, the peak of Jerusalem there on Mount Moriah and the temple on top. And inside the temple, the most holy place. And there's where God sat, and God's feet were placed there. That was his footstool. This was his place. So here he says, I'm going to make the place of my feet glorious. And they're thinking, well, isn't it already? Uh, there's the temple right there. Isn't this a glorious place? And God says, no. Haven't you read the past 59 chapters? You bunch of stinking sinners. You've made the place nasty. I don't want to put my feet here. It sticks when I walk. It stinks in here. I don't like it here anymore because you just keep sinning. That's not the place that I want it to be. But after the Christ comes, he's going to beautify this whole place. He's going to clean it all up. He's going to bring in new people to live here too. Again, spiritually speaking, we don't have to live in Jerusalem. But spiritually speaking, he's going to bring in these Gentiles to come here and they're going to beautify the place. They're going to make it pretty again. And they're going to bring in all of these kind of trees and things to be put up all around the place. Not because this sanctuary of God needs the stability. Like that's what you would have done back in the day. You would hold up these things with these big giant pillars, which were just trees. Sometimes they're covered in gold, but they're just big honking logs they would put up to support the place. But God does not need trees to support his sanctuary. These are being put here to beautify the place. Imagine a sanctuary that is so strong and so upheld by the power of God that the mighty trees of Lebanon are just there like flowers in a vase. That's the church of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. The sons also of them that afflicted thee shall come bending unto thee. And all they that despise thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of your feet and shall call this the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. What will I do with my enemies? I will make them submit to my feet. What is that in the actual actuality of it? What will I do with my enemies? I will preach the gospel to them. They will submit to the same one that I did. They will turn to the same Christ that I did. And they will become my brother in Christ. They will go to the same city of the Lord, the same Zion of the Holy One of Israel, and together we will worship God. 15. Whereas thou hast been forsaken and hated, so that no man went through thee, I will make thee an eternal excellency, a joy of many nations. I listed the five movements, and I, I lost track of them. We're on the fourth one now, by the way, but so it is. Um, he's emphasizing how wonderful it is now to live in this Zion. They were a forsaken people, but now they're embraced by God. They were a hated people, but now they're loved by Christ. 
They were an overlooked people. Remember what he said at the beginning or the middle of the verse? No man went through you. Nobody wanted to go where you were because the land was cursed by God's punishment. But now you're going to be a place where all your needs are met. People are going to want to come there. Once they hear about how great it is to live in the kingdom of the Messiah, people are going to be flocking to it. That's the message that you proclaim. Your job as a Christian is to go telling people how great it is to be a Christian. But all they get on Facebook is how terrible it is all the time, how hard it is all the time, how much suffering you have to deal with all the time, and you're always griping and complaining about how tough the world is. Listen, they're in the world. Tell them how great it is to get out of the world. Give them the reason to leave. And if all you're doing is complaining, and I'm not pointing any fingers, if all you're doing is complaining, then you're not giving the people the positive incentive to get out of the world. All they're saying is, well, I'm glad I'm not over there where they complain all the time. But if instead you would just use your power for good instead of evil, and you would turn your social media into a way to advertise the blessings of Christianity, then people might actually want to take you up on the gospel offer. People might actually want to become part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Because Isaiah is writing about the church of Christ. He's writing about how great it is to live in the church of Christ. They will drink the milk of the Gentiles and suck on the breast of kings. Which, how does that even work? It's a metaphor. What he's saying is these conquering ones who previously would have been bringing their armies to your doors to conquer you now are as harmless as a nursing mother is to her child. They have gone from ravenous wolves seeking to devour you to kitty cats that you don't need to worry about anymore. Thou shalt know, the end of verse 16, that I am the Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. 60 verse 17. How much better will this new kingdom be versus what they had before? Well, let's take the things that you had before. Bring me your wares. Bring me your goods. Bring me the best that you've got. And I'll exchange it for the church of Christ equivalent. I'll exchange it for the kingdom of Christ equivalent. You bring me brass, I'll give you gold. You bring me iron, I'll give you silver. You give me wood, I'll give you brass. You give me stones, I'll give you iron. Whatever you give me, I have the upgrade. I have the better. I'm not going to give you a single reason to say, well, I guess I should stay in the world. No, you're going to want, you're going to race to come into the church of Christ. I will make your officers peace and your exactors righteousness. Your tax collectors are not going to be extorting you. Your people who would come demanding you pay back your debt will instead be granting mercy and grace to you. 60 verse 18. Violence will no more be heard in your land. Wasting and destruction will not be in your borders. But you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. You will not have to worry about evildoers being here because to get from there to here, evil doing is washed away. You are evildoers out there. And then to get from out there to in here, you cross through a fountain threshold, the blood of Jesus Christ. You put all that evil doing to death. And when you rise from the watery grave and he puts you in this place, then you are in the place where the only people who are there are the people who have also put away their sins buried them in a watery grave, and been risen to walk in newness of life. In other words, in the kingdom of the Messiah, as Isaiah describes it, that kingdom contains only saved people and the only saved people. You see the difference? It's one thing to say it only contains saved people. Okay, that's great. If I have, if I have $50 and I have a box and I take 25 of it and I put 25 in here, 
This only contains $25. It doesn't contain, let's say, bills. It doesn't contain any change or any other currency. It's just 25 American dollars. But there's another 25 outside of it. So this only contains $25. But if I said, I'm going to take all 50 and put it here, then all of the money is here and only the money that I have is here. It's nowhere else and there's nothing else but that there. The kingdom of the Messiah contains the saved, only the saved, and only the saved are in the kingdom of the Messiah. And that's a perk. It's a feature, not a bug. That's something to be ashamed of. That's something to try to defend. That's not something you have to double back and him and haw and question. No. You shouldn't be proud of it because it's not your doing. This is God who puts you, the dollar, in the, in the wallet. God puts you there. And so all you're doing is informing people of what the truth is because there's a liar out there who's saying, no, you have money that's floating around outside of it. And that's just not gospel. That's not truth. Isaiah says it. Jesus says it. Peter says it. And every faithful gospel preacher should still be saying it. If you want to be saved, you've got to be in the kingdom of the saved. If you want to be saved, then be saved. Get saved. Do what you got to do to be saved. And when you are, he will just pick you up and put you in the place where he puts his saved people. And he is not sloppy, and he doesn't miss, and he doesn't have butterfingers. So if he picks you up and puts you there, I guarantee you're going there, and he's never missed a one to put there. So everyone who is saved is there, and there ain't nobody who's saved that's not. So you'll look around at your walls, a, a metaphor for protection, and your walls will not be protection. Your walls will be the enclosure of salvation. You will look at your gates, the entryway and exit way of this city, and you will say the gates are praise. Anyone who comes in, comes in singing. 19. The sun will no more light you by day. Neither will the brightness give the moonlight. Neither will the brightness of the moon give light to thee. But the Lord shall be to you the everlasting light. And God shall be the glory. Which in this context is radiance. The brightness of the light is as bright as God's glory itself is. So you don't need the sun overhead anymore. God is the sun. You don't need the moonlight anymore. God is the light. Doesn't that sound familiar? Haven't we read that somewhere else in the New Testament? Revelation 21. John, again by the same inspiring spirit, lists this Isaiah imagery, which Isaiah was writing about. Here's how great it is to be in the kingdom of the Messiah. The sunlight is God's light itself. And then John says, I saw heaven. I saw from heaven, coming out of heaven, I saw the kingdom of the Messiah. And it was this amazing place where there's gemstones everywhere and where the street which everyone's walking on the street is gold solid gold and it was like there was no sunlight because god was the light it's, where do you think john got that imagery the same spirit who told it to john originally got it from isaiah it's, they're talking about the same spiritual thing john is being showed this church that in john's time is being persecuted and the people are being killed and the people are being pressured by sword and by torture to to turn to false gods and to worship caesar over christ and they're being told, hang on, hold on, it's going to get better. Then they're given this book, at the end of which is, here's how it's going to be. Here's what you're going to belong to if they kill you. And if you survive and you die of old age, here's where you get to go. Here's what you belong to now. I saw the church coming out of heaven in this glorified state where there was no persecution, where there was no hardship, where there was no sin, where there was no death. And I saw these people who had suffered so much have God wipe away their tears. And I saw this place that is so amazing to live in that I am willing to endure a little bit of suffering now because this physical world is not what I belong to. I live spiritually there. I live in that place where the streets are gold. Here, the streets are wood. But I don't live here. Just my body's hanging around for a little while. I live there. That's where my mind is. So you can do whatever you want to my body. I don't care. 
My, I'm there. 20. 60, 20. The sun shall no more go down because God doesn't go to sleep. Neither shall the moon withdraw itself. For the Lord shall be your everlasting life. And the days of your mourning shall be ended. God will wipe away your tears. Isaiah is not prophesying you dying going to heaven. He's prophesying you living in the kingdom of the Messiah. He's prophesying the church of Jesus Christ. When you're here, you cry. And God wipes away your tears. 6021. Your people shall be all righteous. Ain't no one there who's not. No one who is isn't here. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The church only has the righteous, and only the righteous are there. And they are freed from perpetual sorrow that sin has brought into the world. This is a holy city built by a holy God, housed by a holy people. You don't need to worry about invasion or desolation or tornado or anything coming to break it down and sweep it away. Never will a person who is here and stays here be lost from here. You have to leave here. You have to stop being faithful here. It is the branch of God's planting. He's the one who does the adding. He's the one who does the increasing. 60.22 A little one shall become a thousand. A small one, a strong nation. Little as much when God is in it. I, the Lord, will hasten it in his time. In this kingdom, it doesn't matter how few there are. Somebody read Luke 13, 23 and 24. Luke 13, 23 and 24. Yes, ma'am. Luke 13, 23 and 24. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you, where you are from. Few will be saved. Anybody, anybody can be saved. Few will take him up on the offer of being saved. But those who are saved will be close to the Lord. A little number will outnumber a sinful majority. A small number will outmuscle the might of Satan's forces. Who's familiar with this phrase here? God plus one equals a majority. Inaccurate. God is the majority. You need to be his plus one. You need to get on his side. Get behind him, because it's not you up here. God plus me, we can do it. God doesn't need you. And if you dropped off the face of the earth, he'd still win. You're, you're not the champion here. God is the majority. Get on his side, because it's the winning side. You do. It doesn't matter if you, there's no, nobody else you know who does. If you do, you're on the winning side, because God's already won. Get on the winning side. Workout finished. The bell's about to ring. Any comments or questions from anybody? All right. Next week, Isaiah 61, a phrase which our Messiah actually quotes from as he talks about his mission and ministry. All right. I'm done. The bell's going to ring in a minute, but I'm finished. Go. Just don't tell your kids to let you out early.
And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash matthew-martin414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then, but for the most part, I put everything behind a massive giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of, I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can, if you can manage that a dollar a month, that's, you know, it's not easy, but if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dash Martin 414 and hit subscribe for a buck and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right. Thank you.